this play is a classic because it is a beautiful, funny, vibrant, melodramatic, exciting, glorious miasma of queerness. This play is a classic because it combines history with humor, empathy, and a drag ball. There you go. There you go. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello and welcome to This Is A Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater podcast. We're your hosts, Shannon Corinthian, curator for Expand the Canon Project, ensemble member with Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, and all-around creator. And me, Sky Pagan, curator for Expand the Canon and another member of Hedgepig Ensemble. And we're here to introduce you to some plays by women that are classics. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. By investing in the growth of our artists, we nurture an inclusive and collaborative community that creates artistically excellent work. So Shannon, what are we here to talk about today? We're here to talk about The Drag by Mae West. If you thought LGBTQ plus culture was invented in the 1960s, think again. Witty, tragic, and vibrant, the drag is an exquisite portrait of the existing LGBTQ community of the 1920s. Mae West crafts an eloquent history lesson mixed with joyful celebration. The drag shows the perils of conversion therapy and the criminalization of homosexuality while simultaneously presenting in delightful clarity the same joys, losses, warmth, and transgressive counterculture that our LGBTQ family feels to this day. Well, that sold me. Um, same. <laughs> when are we seeing this? <laughs> when are we seeing this? Hopefully very soon, because hopefully somebody is listening to this and will do this play. So, Shannon, you know me. You remember <laughs> how annoying I have been about this play for approximately a year now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard you talk about this play the most, for sure. It is indeed, it, it is a little bit, like, it's a little bit of a bit at this point, right. but also I do <laughs> sincerely love this play. And I think what I love about it is many things. One, there's a drag ball on stage, mm, oof. which feels like sentence ending there. Like, that should be. Yeah, that should just be it. It's That's why you produce this play, a drag ball. It's that, it's so, I love the melodrama of it. I love the heightened part of it. I love how how much spectacle there is, the magic of that. But the thing that I really love so much about this play is Mae West wrote this play in collaboration with a bunch of her gay male friends back in the West Village. She like got together and used oh. these, she like interviewed people and did these sort of just like collaborative devised processes oh my god so it yeah. and it feels that way because when these characters talk to each other it like feels like oh you're not yeah making up your idea of you know what how a drag queen talks it's like this girl's been to a drag show <laughs> she knows <laughs> could you imagine being there like 
being a part of history because this play is now part of the canon. It really is. And I think like, I mean, the, this play never got performed because or, or didn't get performed on Broadway because it got censored for, you know, homophobic reasons. But so it is also part of a, a part of the legacy of queer history. And that's what I think is also so interesting about this play is we're it is a snapshot of a particular time in queer history. So it's the time of early conversion therapy. And, you know, it is talking about homosexuality and gayness and queerness as sort of a disease, which obviously problematic and bad. So it's like this this part of this sort of traumatic, horrifying part of queer history, which you know, is still to this day often overlooked, but also manages to weave in these really mm. joyful elements and this celebration of, you know, queer friendship that feels authentic and spectacular so that it's not just a tragedy because we don't need more queer stories that are pure tragedy. That's, you know, we have enough of that. Right. So it's like you get this interesting history lesson, but at the same time... Get some joy. Get some joy, which is perfect. That's how I like my history lessons. Yeah, same. To think that this is still this is still a subject that's relevant. Like it's a 100-year-old play mm-hmm. that's still relevant. How insane is that? I know. And it's like I also love so much I mean is what you were saying in your little pitch of mm-hmm. you know there's this also also perception of like gay people didn't exist before like, right. the Stonewall riots, which is just like obviously not true. Super false. And, you know, like... Do we know about the Romans? Do we, we know about the Romans. <laughs> and like, like queerness has always been here. Queer people have always been here vibing and throwing drag parties and living life. And right. this is like putting those stories front and center, which is also like quite transgressive for the time period. I mean, people weren't telling queer stories um especially you know for mainstream audiences although obviously it didn't get performed for mainstream audiences because censors yeah okay well i'm thoroughly excited about this but sky what is this play like tell us what happens in this play oh what happens in this play so set the scene (laughs) dum dum At the start of this play, we have two families, basically. We have uh, a woman named Claire uh, and her father, Dr. Richmond. So her father is a sort of controversial doctor. He is controversial because instead of believing that gay people are evil, as most people did, uh, he believes that that they are simply, like, sick with something, which is, want to be clear, deeply problematic. And the play doesn't necessarily endorse that belief, but, like, that's the sort of world they're living in. So anyway, so he's he's sort of uh, investing in what is essentially like proto-conversion therapy. So he works with a lot of young gay men. And meanwhile, there's this other family, the Kingsburys. Uh, so there's Judge Kingsbury, who is good friend of the doctors, and his son, Raleigh. And Raleigh and Claire grew up together. They were like childhood besties. And then as they got older, they got married, Ooh. much to the happiness of their fathers. So... At the start of this play, we are in Dr. Richmond's house, and this young guy named David shows up to see the doctor, and he's clearly very upset. We don't really know why. Mm-hmm. And the doctor is like, my daughter's about to come. You wait in the other room. I'll be in to see you in a moment. And Claire comes home, and she seems super happy, kind of, but she's also talking kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And she, she's talking to her dad, and it kind of comes out that she and Raleigh are having 
maybe some marriage problems, but she's not quite sure why. She says that they're great friends. They're super happy. He's really nice to her. He lets her do whatever she wants and they get along really well, but that like something is missing and she's not quite sure what. I feel like this point is um, progressive as well. The fact that, which is problematic, but the fact that a young woman will come to her father and talk to him about her marriage problems, especially in the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're very, no, they're very close. So she's coming and she's talking to him and it's like, and he says, why don't you go away? So she has an aunt and she's like, I'm going to go away for a little while with my aunt. Maybe you just need some space. And at this point, Raleigh arrives and Raleigh's like, that's a great idea. You should go away. That sounds like a lovely idea. And this makes the doctor and her, Claire's father, a little suspicious. Yeah. Like, yeah, go, go away, honey. I won't miss you. You go do your thing. Bye. It's like, Weird vibes, but okay. Um, and the two of them, Raleigh and Claire, like they're super nice to each other. Like there's nothing outwardly wrong, but like clearly something is wrong. And then David, the young man who appeared earlier, appears from inside Dr. Richmond's studies. He's heard all these voices and he comes out and he sees Raleigh and he has like a fit for mysterious oh. reasons. And Raleigh's like, I don't even know who that is. I don't know what's going on. Dun, dun, dun. And David like runs out. So... A little bit later, we're now at Raleigh and Claire's house and Claire is getting ready to go out with a friend. And so she's upstairs and a bunch of Raleigh's friends come over and surprise, there are a whole bunch of drag queens because double surprise, Raleigh's gay. (laughs) So all these fabulous drag queens come in and they're roasting Raleigh and they're like, wow, Raleigh, you're being super weirdly chill about the fact that your wife is going out with another dude. And there's like obviously something going on there. And he's like, all right, whatever, settle down. And then Alan, the friend, shows up and Raleigh's drag queen friends leave. It's clear that Alan's like a little bit overwhelmed by all the drag queens. And Raleigh and Alan start talking and it comes out that Raleigh is in love with Alan. And Alan is like, oh, dude, I'm in love with Claire, your wife. That's an awkward love triangle. Yeah, so they have an argument. Raleigh's like like devastated and Alan is like kind of angry at Raleigh and appalled by this revelation. And Raleigh's like, please, please don't tell Claire, don't tell my wife. And Alan kind of acquiesces, but he's like clearly very annoyed about it. He thinks it's a lie. He thinks that Raleigh is using Claire by being married to her when he's mm. gay. But like the times, Alan, it's not like he could just come out and be safe. Totally. And it's not like Alan's behaving super well at this point. Anyway, everyone's behaving badly. So trying to smooth this moment over, Raleigh's like, I'm having this party. You should come. I think you'll understand if you come to this party. Raleigh leaves the house and Alan immediately goes to Claire, confesses his love for her. They kiss. Twist. (laughs) It's a little bit later. So Claire's out for the night. Uh, She goes out and Raleigh, in her absence, is throwing a big old drag ball. This is the drag ball scene. There's a kiki. There's a massive group dance scene. There's drag queens roasting each other. It's a party. The police show up and bust it uh, mm-hmm. tragically, but it's fine. And Raleigh realizes that Alan never showed up and he's really sad about it. So he goes up to bed sort of morosely. And then we hear mm-hmm. a gunshot. So the police arrived. Uh, Raleigh's father, the judge, arrived, and it becomes clear that Raleigh was murdered. No. And the first suspect is Alan. Obviously, the servants saw him and Claire in their little embrace earlier, and people heard him fighting with Raleigh. But no, 
it's revealed that the murderer was actually David, who was that guy hiding in the doctor's office. Right, right. Who turns out had been Raleigh's previous lover, but he dumped him when he met Alan. And so he murdered Raleigh out of jealousy. So then Claire's father, the doctor, arrives, you know, because they're all very close and hears what happens, sees what happens. And he's talking and he has this conversation with the judge where he's like, you know, there's no reason for the truth to come out. It would just mean that everyone would find out about Raleigh's sexuality. It would just mean dragging his name through the mud. There'd be all this drama. You could just say it was a suicide. And so the play ends with the judge going over to the police and saying it was a suicide Uh... reported as such. And the secret stays there. So it's quite dramatic. (laughs) Yeah. We have a love triangle. We have... Love square, if you consider David. Yeah, we have a love square. We have murder. We have all sorts of drama. So a lot happens in this play. Yeah, it's quite the roller coaster. I remember when you were first talking about it and describing it. It's definitely... I was definitely like, and this happens, and this happens, and then this dramatic event happens, and we're all like, just listening to you, I mean, just now, again, listening to you tell it, I was definitely on the edge of my seat, being like, oh my god, right, oh, right, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely like K-drama, Shonda Rhimes, like, drama. (laughs) Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Which is sometimes what you want to see. 100%, on stage, I want to see a big drag ball, and then... Um, I mean, maybe not murder, but suspense, thriller, some love triangles, love squares. That's all that makes for entertaining theater. Plus a little touch of history lesson and humility and empathy. I'm there. History. That was quite the dramatic story, quite beautifully written. But who better to tell a dramatic and beautiful story than a dramatic and beautiful woman? Oh, segue. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but Maywes was very interesting, was she not? Oh, my goodness. What a gal. So May West is such an icon and such a multi-hyphenated artist, such an interesting performer. I feel like she started the multi-hyphenate title. Maybe not started it, but definitely was part of that group that was like those women that were like, I'm going to do everything at once and you can't stop me. Oh my god, absolutely. So she's born in Brooklyn in 1893 to a showbiz family. So her father was a prize fighter for a while, so like fisticuffs, I guess. <laughs> um, and her mother had been a model. So she like grows up in this world. She starts performing at church events and like in amateur shows when she was as young as five. She was a vaudeville performer by the age of 14. She's singing, she's dancing, she's doing it all. And she got her big break in a Broadway show called A La Broadway in 1911. Oh. And The show itself was panned. It was terrible. But she was singled out by a New York Times critic for her, quote, grotesquerie and snappy way of singing and dancing, which is quite the review. (laughs) You know, all of this is like she's a teenager, but it's only a matter of years before she's like a staple of the theater scene, both as a performer and then very soon as a writer. So she's all over Broadway. Um, Her first starring role on Broadway was actually in a play that she wrote herself called Sex in 1926, which caused such an uproar amongst the censors of the time that the theater itself was raided and West was imprisoned for 10 days. I mean, how dare she write a play called Sex? You can't say that word. 
S-E-X. I know. <gasps> also, highly recommend. Very interesting play. Very fun. Wild story. There's also, so there's this wild fable, like, who knows if it's true. There's all these crazy Mae West stories, and it's like, <laughs> you know, who knows if any of them are actually true, but, like, we want you to enjoy this. So there's a story that, like, when she was... Uh, knew she was going to be imprisoned when you know she had to show her like go down to the police station she showed up in a limo like just like living her absolute best life but instead of dissuading Mae West from provoking the censors anymore this experience actually only made her more successful because everyone you know people love drama Yeah. yeah and everybody wants what they can't have I mean the minute you tell us you can't have something for no good reason too like they didn't have a good reason to be like this play is banned other than it's salacious content everybody's like i want to see this even more yeah and it's not like it's like pornographic and it's not and also like even putting aside sort of puritanical beliefs about sexuality like it's there's no none of her writing was evil or like dealing in like weird propaganda or anything like that it's just people were offended by a woman owning her sexuality and talking about it openly on stage so she's quickly becomes like a total star she's not only this great comic actress who's known for her quips and her like snappy one-liners which you can find all over the internet but also as this woman whose humor and her self-image was deeply rooted in her embracing of her sexuality so because of this she went on to play this like cat and mouse game with various religious groups and censorship boards and critics for the rest of her career where like she'd write something it it would get like Mm. banned or like people would try to shut her down and then she'd just be back on the game. Although she did eventually leave Hollywood after like this crazy period of success where she was making movie after movie after movie and she like abruptly leaves for almost 30 years because she just kept getting censored and she felt like she just couldn't work under those conditions. She felt like she couldn't produce work authentically that was, you know, artistically truthful and true to like what she wanted to make. So she just left. That's so frustrating. I know it's incredibly frustrating, like brave, but also like, like clearly everyone loves what she's doing, but yet she has to leave because a few don't think that that's appropriate. (sighs) And, you know, a lot of the reason she was getting censored was for, you know, this sort of, you know, how quote unquote salacious her work was and like the undertones (laughs) and overtones about sex and sexuality. But a lot of it was also her politic. So she was a very early proponent of the women's liberation movement, but she was also an early supporter of gay rights and queer rights, which is like way before that was even remotely okay by general societal standards. And, you know, I mean, if you read some of her writing on the subject and some of her quotes, it's some of her like support of the queer community is clearly founded in ideas that we would now describe as pseudoscience and sort of fad thinking. Like it doesn't necessarily speak to the most nuanced understanding of like what actually like what actually queerness is. Right, right, right. But that I don't think that necessarily negates the fact that she was still incredibly outspoken and willing to stand up for the rights of queer people to live, to love openly, to just go about their business. So she's getting censored for all of that as well. You know, there are producers that don't want to be associated with her because of her political beliefs in addition for the work she's producing. Their loss, clearly. Clearly. So she dies in 1980 after 
this career that is like truly like 80 years long almost uh spanning stage and vaudeville and radio and film both on stage and off as a performer and a writer um and to this day i mean she's just renowned for her for her witty sense of humor and her brashness and her shameless ownership of her own sexuality especially in a time when women were not supposed to be brash (laughs) and funny and owning their sexuality And she has this great quote she apparently once said of, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. She originated YOLO. She originated YOLO. (laughs) (laughs) We have Mae West to thank everyone for YOLO. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I want to thank anyone for YOLO, but she says it better. That's true. (laughs) Fair. And she said it better. And clearly she lived it. I mean, she had a wild life and achieved incredible successes and was an, it was and is an icon of pop culture and of women's liberation and sexual liberation in this country and should be celebrated for that. Legacy. All right, and now we have a scene from the drag taking place at the infamous drag ball between two infamous drag queens. So here we have Basil Rodericks reading for Kate and Royston Scott reading for Winnie. Take it away. My God! If it isn't Kate! How do you do? How do you do? Your face is very familiar, but I don't know where to put it. Oh, don't you remember? I'm the girl that jumped out the window when the wagon drove up. Oh, yes, of course. But dearie, you should have stayed with us. We had a grand time. The police were perfectly lovely to us. Why, the minute I walked into jail, the captain said, well, Kate, what kind of soul would you like to have? And I says, ooh, any kind will do, Captain, just so it has a couple of peepholes in it. I crave fresh air. <laughs> Mind, but you're getting thin. I am not. I can at least cling to a man without wearing him out. You're terribly fat. Fat? <laughs> I should say not. <laughs> I'm the type that men prefer. You don't say. At least I can go through the Navy Yard without having all the flags drop to half mast. Listen, dearies, pull in your aerial. You're full of static. I'm just the type that men crave, the type that binds them up. Why, when I walk up 10th Avenue, you can smell the meat sizzling in Hell's Kitchen. By the way, I saw your husband the other day. Which one, dearie? Which one? The boot. Mm. And what he told me about you was enough. What did he tell you? Oh, I did not. Anyway, I only took two puffs off the horrid old thing. And cigarettes make me deathly sick. (laughs) One never can tell. My dear, I forgot to tell you about my operations. I'd had so many operations. I look like a slot machine. I had my face lifted the other day and when I got home I looked in the mirror and it dropped. Why I have a perfect triangle here. Mm, That's nothing. 
I have one that's a zigzag. That's nothing, dearie. I have a gash from here to here. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) What a fun scene. Thank you so much, Basil and Royston. That was great. Thank you for joining us for the drag edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. You can learn more at expandthecanon.com. For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donation at the link in the comments below, bit.ly slash hedgepig memberships. Again, I'm Shannon Corinthian. And I'm Sky Pagan. And we'll see you real soon. <laughs>